wanted to uh, show you something my feeble little arms were able to carry. By all means. M Mr. Tibbs. Oh, is that it? Is that Mr. Tibbs? Is that what they call you? They call you Mr. Tibbs? What do they call you now? Whatever. I don't care. Oh. Continuing completed classics. Fulfilling failed franchises. Reinvigorating reviled rehashes. It's the follow-up showdown! With Paul Gitz, Travis McMaster, and Lauren Pacorni. Hello, all you uppers and downers, and welcome to the follow-up showdown 3 AFIII, where this season we give worthy second chapters to top 100 movies that don't have them. We are a podcast that pitches ultimate sequels to movies without them, and this season we are making our way through all existing sequels to movies on both versions of the AFI Top 100 list. I'm your host, Mr. Getz. With me are my co-hosts, Mr. McMaster and Ms. Picorni. How's it going, guys? Good. Great. Yes. It is uh, going. I don't have any themed jokes. <laughs> Just Mr. I went with Mr. Uh, and I went with Mr. Because today we are investigating 1970s They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. Sequel to number 75 on the 10th anniversary list, 1967's In the Heat of the Night. We will get to the fun of talking about these movies, but first, let's knock out the business with two Travis McMaster minutes. Two Travis McMaster minutes. Let me know when you're ready to break down both God, these man, movies in two this, minutes. This is going to be a, a rough one. <laughs> okay. And go. Oh, no. <laughs> so there's a murder in Mississippi. And uh, while just driving around looking for suspects and clues, the white cop comes upon a black man, uh, Sidney Poitier, immediately harasses and arrests him, takes him back to the station, where they learn that he is a police officer from Philadelphia who is on his way home, who has now been entrenched in this investigation in this small town. His uh, captain back home forced him to stay on it. He doesn't want to, but he's smarter than everyone else in the town. Uh, so he's trying to solve it while coming up against racism. And then the Mississippi captain cop guy, who is also very racist, has to try and learn to be not that way because he needs this guy to help him solve the murder. Uh, and then there's a murder mystery. It was very interesting, mm. and they solve it. Mm. Um, and then, then, and then there's they're kind of like, I'm a little bit less racist now, Cindy po Sydney Poitier, <clears throat> but just what voice? just barely. <laughs> That's okay. the Mississippi cop. Okay, and yeah. then and then all is well. And then and they call me Mister Tibbs. A a it opens with a woman getting murdered, and she's a prostitute. And we don't know who did it. Obviously, man. And then... God. Anyway, and then the handyman finds her, and he picks up the murder weapon, and then the skeezy landlord's like, you need to get out of here, Mealy. His name's Mealy. Uh, and then, like, we... And then, eventually, we we ramble our way on to Sidney Poitier, Virgil, who seems... Literally says he doesn't want to take the case, but, like, one of his friends is a suspect, so he's like, I guess I'll do it. And then we watch him, like, solve that case while he also checks in with his family that he seems to hate a little bit 
Um, and then literally it's like he just kind of casually solves the case. Um, and his friend did do it. Spoilers. Briefly, you think Ed Asner did it, kind of, but he didn't. And he just literally just kind of like walks through this case All and right. solves it. Yeah, that's two movies. That's not bad. Was that yeah, okay? that was considering. Yeah, more or less it. I think you did a good job. Yeah. Thanks. I only things that would stick out at me that maybe could help the listeners a little bit. He's a homicide expert that's mm. established in the first one. Uh, he doesn't live in Philadelphia in the second one. It's San Francisco. And his friend who did it in the second movie is a priest who is fighting for a political cause that we don't really know. What Housing. It is. House, house rule. But I think that people know by now the McMaster Minute is not designed to help. Oh, I know. Oh, okay. Its charm is to be what it is that you forget every time. And must make a mad dash to get all the information out. Yeah, I used to try harder, but I do, to some extent, try to fill in enough detail so that anyone who doesn't want to watch these movies, and God bless them, that's fine, might be able to understand what we're talking about for the most part. I as think we there get should be an element of, of that. Okay. I'm not going to do it. Well, let- <laughs> yeah. But I agree still that have it the should job. exist. Yeah. All right. Well, <clears throat> let's talk about the first one in the heat of the night, mm. 1967. 1968 Best Picture winner, $2 million budget, $24.4 million box office. Ooh, nice. Yeah, a smash hit. It beat Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, another City Poitier classic. Wow. Cool Hand Luke, The Dirty Dozen, Bonnie and Clyde, and The Graduate. Wow, what wow. a good year. Yes, yes. That's wild. I wouldn't, <clears throat> I feel like I thought The Graduate and all those other movies were winners in different years. The Graduate so. is higher on these lists. Than in the heat of the night. Hmm. I've never seen that. It. Take anything, whatever. I don't recall means. liking it. We'll okay. see. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> I had to have known. I must have known that Norman Jewison directed this. Mm. I was still surprised to learn it mm. in the opening credits mm. because I love Fiddler on the Roof. Sure, a great deal. Yeah. And I love Moonstruck. Yeah, Norman Jewison <clears throat> is a uh, is a king son, and he did uh, he the Hurricane Jesus he Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh yeah. man, the right. Hurricane! Yeah, so yeah. I love Jesus Christ Superstar and Fiddler. When discovering yeah. that he directed in the heat of the night, I immediately relaxed. Yeah, because yeah. then a stamp of quality. Uh huh. And then, as you mentioned, all throughout, they call me Mister Tibbs. Uh, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll we got to that. we got to establish mm-hmm. <laughs> the okay. groundwork. I I, yeah. re- I liked it. It was great. In the heat of the night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. in the heat of the night. Wonderful. I was surprised to hear how much I assume this movie established what cop mm. music sounded like for the Ooh. next like 15 Ooh, and a half goodness. 20 years. Quincy Boy. Jones basically reshaping another musical landscape. And we might as well start there because Music. Let's just talk about the music now. Music notes, as far as this first movie is concerned. This movie starts with a Ray Charles song written for this movie. And it's just, as soon as it starts, like you said, I was on board right away. But I was on board right away without knowing the director, what else he's done, really, like anything. It was just like the title sequence with these awesome titles that look like Soul Bass titles. Mm. I looked it up. They're not, but they, they look great. It's just really well shot the color of the train is cool the song is cool it's just like i'm i'm brought in in a, in a huge way yeah even if i didn't like the rest of the movie i was still would have brought up the opening title sequence and then you see music by quincy jones and you go oh this is gonna keep going like this and it does yeah my goodness does it i have huge awesome quincy jones facts for this movie uh well two more <laughs> but <laughs> but they're really huge but they're though. awesome but first let's get to lauren's feelings on the movie what what 
Um, I liked it. I wanted to like it more. Mm. I feel like the tone it was going for was a little bit unclear, but really, I, I think it's for what it is. It's it's incredible, of course, because mm. it's a movie that's made in the the heat yeah. <laughs> of the civil rights movement, sure. and it's just insane that it exists. And I can see why it's so it, it impactful. Had a Personality than we were. Both it had a little expect. more personality. I thought it was, was going to be a little more fancier. Is the only word I can think of. But every now and then, the music or or a moment in a scene would be a little more playful than I was expecting from. Yeah. You know, a fancy film like in the heat of the night. I thought maybe it was going to be like a little sillier at times because some mm. of the stuff it sets up is like a little playful, mm. mm-hmm. but it's kind of just straightforward, which yeah. isn't a bad thing. I just I, I want to like it a little bit more. I found myself not super thinking about it much the next day, but in terms of that specific comment, I had the exact opposite experience where I would say my number one criticism while watching the movie was the focus of this movie was on Gillespie, the chief of police. I would say he feels more like the main character in the first movie to me because he's going through a journey of changing at all. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. Virgil is just there being the best and better than everybody. And like, he's a joy to watch. And I thought that Gillespie, Rod Steiger, as Gillespie did a really good job. Mm -hmm. Uh, and brought a lot of character to that character but his journey is not as interesting to me because i just want him to be better quicker yeah and for at the end of the movie to get to they're at the train station he goes like virgil bye i like you like (laughs) it's like haven't you liked him the whole time he's great and he's making you better like there was it, it it that journey wasn't a journey for me it was just a slow like okay well he's still kind of a piece of shit you know, and even in the end, I don't feel like he's 100% I think turned around. that's just right. a matter of watching it not in 1967. Yes. I think a lot yes. of the stuff that was revolutionary at the time to us now just feels like, I got to watch this guy end up at basic human decency right. barely when there's life on the line. I got to yeah. watch him be racist while yeah. he like scoffs at other people for also being racist. He is less racist than everybody else in the town. Sure. Except for the widow mm-hmm. of the dead body. Uh, <laughs> uh, he So he's less racist, but he uses the sort of town as it's set up as like a crutch to be like, when he feels powerless in the presence of Virgil Tibbs, who's a really good cop, mm-hmm. he just leans back on, well, I've always been taught to believe I'm better than you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even though he knows he's not. Mm-hmm. And he keeps admitting it, but then taking it back and being like, but I can call you boy. Yeah. Right. You know. And he does. And he does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. But, so my opposite experience was that the next day, I kept thinking more about everything that was awesome about it. Uh, it's shot really cool. Mm, yeah. The clues to the mystery are really cool. And the mystery itself comes together in a really interesting way where when the reveal happens, it all makes sense, but it had nothing to do with any of the motives they were chasing the whole time. Yeah. Right? Which were present and obvious and, and racially based. And though that's there and makes everybody a red herring, in the end, when you think back on all the clues, like her drinking the Coca-Cola at the beginning, and that being what the cop gets at the diner every time. Mm. And that's interesting. And yeah, it ends up being the diner guy. Spoilers. <laughs> I, I <laughs> will say, guy. the yeah. second I saw, what's his name, Ralph? The second yeah. I saw him, I was like, 
don't you need to get back to the Bates Motel? Yeah. So he didn't not have killer energy. (laughs) Definitely. And well, first of all, so the clue of like him flicking the flies in the first essentially scene we get Mm -hmm. in the movie. Very, very cool to think back on him dancing to the creepy music. A very cool scene. The jukebox scene, which I'll go ahead and get into that. Quincy Jones, they wanted to use... Hey there, little red riding mm-hmm. hood. But they couldn't get the rights. So Quincy Jones wrote that song and him and his band, uh, Foul Owl on the Prowl. Nice. And it's so cool. And uh, it's performed by Owens, Boomer, Castleman, and Michael Martin Murphy. Hmm. So Quincy Jones wrote that song. He wrote the Ray Charles song. And... He arranged the Glenn Campbell song that the cop is listening to when he's making his cruise at the beginning and he goes past the mm. uh, topless woman's window. Quincy Jones. Nice. Yeah. Man, this guy crushed it in terms of this movie. Anyways, I I liked being able to look at those movie those scenes with with the killer and say, this guy could be the killer. And then the next scene be like, well, he could be the killer too. Yeah. Everybody here is. <laughs> what I really enjoyed about the way this frame of the mystery was the story, the main story, the two cops relationship essentially Mm -hmm. is a racially charged story as is the mystery because the victim in the first one is meant to open a factory and hire a bunch of black workers and all of the racist white men in the town don't want that and so that makes every man a suspect Mm. and they're all evil right Right. (laughs) like they're all evil racists so it being a mystery at all when it ended up being something so simple i feel like that it does make it a little feel a little bit more poignant because we were lost in the sauce of the actual story and then the you know mystery turned out to be something a little bit more everyday and something yeah. that they set up immediately mm-hmm. right in the opening scene you yeah. get the all, all the key players and yeah. what their relationship is yeah norman you did it again <laughs> with a foot chase scene where when you get our your first suspect after Virgil, who's never really actually a right. suspect, but mm-hmm. I loved that chase. That was one of my favorite chase scenes I've ever seen. Maybe I'm just not as used to that era of like what we were, how we were shooting chase scenes. Like the chase scene with the dogs, where they're running across the sand, and then climbing oh, up the bridge right. and mm. running across the bridge, and then they're mm. playing that cool music, and Gillespie turns on his car and just starts driving, and you're looking at him from the profile through that, the window. So that like, part confused me a lot. I, I know the chase. I, I remember yeah. the chasing now. Yeah, it was really cool. But I that part, because the shot, they do like this long shot of him, the suspect, running across the bridge. Mm-hmm. And then I believe the next shot is like Gillespie in profile in his car. Watching it. Watching yeah. it. Yeah. And then he starts driving, and then he's like, I'm on him. Yeah. And I didn't, re- I thought he was perpendicular to the bridge, far away looking. I didn't realize that he was right behind him. Yeah. I thought he was on the other, I thought he was on the Arkansas side of the, the bridge, like driving towards the suspect to cut him off. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not a I big didn't deal. Have I wouldn't have specific, brought that up, yeah. um, except that you brought up the actual chase scene. Yeah, I thought he was just sort of, you know, waiting for him to get there because they knew where he was headed and they had right. called it in. That's true. Yeah. You were right. Yes, yeah. right, right. Anyways, um, I really enjoyed that chase. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, that, that young fella is oh. the old guy from The Walking Dead who got Herschel. decapitated. Yeah. yeah. Spoilers for The Walking Dead. That <laughs> actor, Scott Wilson, so impressed Sidney Poitier in that role, which, by the way, I did love that role. I love the role that character took on with him becoming his friend. Like, Tib- or I mean, not really, but in terms of how Tibbs does his police work, he's able to get an edge because he makes he's friends. A source. With yeah, 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 yeah. 
Um, he kind of wor- kind of works him as the uh, like. Let's talk about Sidney Poitier if we can. Holy hell, I've never Ooh, seen. My goodness. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a Sidney Poitier movie before this one, and he lives up to the hype. Yeah. Right, he's mm-hmm. very good. He Absolutely. is great, and it's um, you know, as far as like th- seeing the other cop is more like he has the the arc. Right, um, Gillespie. Yeah, Gillespie. I even remember saying to Lauren at some point like. These cops are so useless. Virgil has to have his own internal character arcs because he just sort of says at one point, like, right. I had my own prejudices. I've gotten over it. Now I just need to work to work with you. And it's like, this guy, it's yeah. just, you know, because the whole movie is about that racial tension. Right. So the whole movie, you are watching this guy be in complete control of his emotions at all times because yes. it's life and death every second. Yes. And seeing, like, that's what that whole first scene of, him being brought into Gillespie's office and Gillespie keeps talking about the air conditioner and just how long yeah. and frustrating it is to get to the simple fact, the information that we all watching have all already know, of course, right. that he is a cop and just getting you into the headspace of what it takes for him right. to be this good and have to be this good. Which, of course, he hasn't brought up to that point because he knows it will only serve him best to be patient and cooperative and deal with it in the right way. He's not just better than everyone as a cop mm. he's better in every way right he mm. is like you said complete control of his emotions and it's it's he's better in such undeniable ways that that is sort of what cuts through any belief system the characters have he just keeps proving himself right mm-hmm. and better mm-hmm. and right mm-hmm. and, and better ma- making yeah. them have to constantly ask right for he's his helping help. them yeah and he's willingly helping them i mean he does like you said his captain does Say he has to stay. Right. I do love, we're playing fast and loose with the uh, jurisdiction rules. It's, yeah, 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 you're in, oh, you're in Mississippi, you're a Mississippi cop. Yeah, there was, was fun. So I think some of the tone stuff that was like sort of hitting me oddly because I was expecting more of a straight to kill a mockingbird is mm. like the specifically the scene where Virgil and Gillespie are at the train station again. And there's kind of like almost fun plinky plunky music playing and they're sitting up like opposite each other on a bench. Mm -hmm. And it looks like they are playing Gillespie's violent racism as a how are these two gonna get along quirk. It's like the scene where the, you know, the the planes, trains and automobile and like Steve Martin frustrated with (laughs) John Candy. One's a stiff and one's a a a slob. Um, But it's kind of also that like Archie Bunker thing of them going... I understand that it's the movie saying, like, these people exist in this way. Yeah. This is how we're thawing that ice. Right. I can at least appreciate that they established, because it's 1967, so racism is just everywhere. I mean... Had a big year that year. Thank God so much has changed. <laughs> at least that there is Philadelphia. There is a place where it's not like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, like, wading in the racism of this is frustrating and like exhausting you just want people to make progress as you watch the film but it's like at least it's almost established as hell like the character starts in hell yeah but it does have weird like you said bits of fun one of my favorite weird running subtle gags is the two brothers in the police station that are constantly fooling the captain and blaming things on the other brother. Yeah, that was cute. I like how whenever Sidney Poitier slapped the racist guy back, yeah. he uh, was trying his hardest not to oh, cry. I loved it. And that, that, <laughs> that was so great. I mean, the slap, everything about that is great. But yeah. like 
the way it was played when they left and he did cry. Yeah. It was like in a comedy <laughs> film, it would have cut a second earlier with just biting back tears. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they let it continue into he's crying because he's a little baby. He's a yeah. little, like, you know what I mean? Like everything about his beliefs and everything. He's a coddled little baby mm -hmm. uh, who has the power to stay a little baby. And oh man. And yeah. that, that moment in 1967 had to be yes. big deal. Right? Yes, I will. Okay, so surely you have start with the writer's notes. Yeah, the retaliation slap was neither in the... Well, according to Sidney Poitier, was neither in the original script nor the novel. By the way, these are based on novels. Oh, right. Which I'm... We'll get to into how that plays with the second one. Like, it helps me understand the second one a little bit more. It's like, oh yeah, this was maybe just... Maybe the first one played a little bit more with it mm -hmm. with the novel and the second one just went yeah here's what the what happens in the book yeah hmm. anyway boring like a book <laughs> yeah uh so po according to Poitier, he insisted <laughs> on the moment of tibbs slapping endicott back and wanted to guarantee that the scene would appear in all prints of the film but according to nice. sterling Siliphant, the slap was in the original script who's nice. sterling Siliphant? the writer, writer. Okay. sorry the writer of the film and well okay Sorry, I don't. And what? Well, and what, it's a Paul? controversial thing to say, I guess, but I was willing to hear that argument more that it was in the original script, but then I found out Sterling Silfant's white. And I was I wondering. Sandy Poitier a little bit more. Yeah. Sure. You know. I was hoping he wasn't white. Uh, so he also wrote The Towering Inferno, The Poseidon Adventure, oh. and Charlie, the uh, first adaptation of Flowers for Algernon. Wow. That's oh. quite a. Oh, he wrote a lot. Quite a broad net. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My other fact I have here about the slap is that director Norman Jewison uh, and editor Hal Ashby, when they attended a sneak preview of the movie, Norman was worried because the audience was laughing at the dialogue pretty hmm. regularly. He's worried they weren't taking the film seriously. Hal insisted, oh, they just are enjoying watching Tibbs put these characters in their oh, place. Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it wasn't until the slap and there was an audible like gasp shock moment in yeah. the theater that Jewison decided, okay, yes, this is working. Like this is playing. I felt uh, bad for the dude in the back who had to hold all that lemonade. Oh yeah. Uh, for oh, that yeah, one yeah. long shot for who knows how many takes. Yeah. Then he got buffeted on the way out. He did get He's buffeted. just holding lemonade. Yeah, he was just holding oh poor guy. I could do some lemonade. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, we don't have time for you to make it. Uh, <laughs> uh oh, and also they shot it in two takes. They were real slaps, full hand slaps. And the director didn't believe that the Larry Gates, the actor playing Endicott, could slap hard enough. So he made him practice on himself, Jewison. Mm. Wow. He slapped multiple times to get the guy limbered up. <laughs> he knew Sidney could slap, but not Endicott. I, I wonder if he was like, this guy's probably going to be... Yeah. Probably intimidating to slap Sidney Poitier. Yeah. yeah. He's so like, you can warm up on me. I'm yeah, the yeah. director. Get used to slapping. Yeah. The, the tears were not scripted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Gillespie. Mm. I do think, obviously, Poitier as Virgil, I did, because of that sort of like imbalance I felt throughout the movie of just a little too much Gillespie story, mm. not enough Virgil, I was like, I, I'm excited for a full movie of Virgil. Yeah. You'd think. You'd think. <laughs> but I do think Rod Steiger did an excellent job mm -hmm. as Gillespie. He was a compelling character. And specifically the scene 
where they're in his home. Yeah. And he establishes that he's uh, Virgil's first person who's been there and he's just sad and lonely mm-hmm. and drunk and his life is horrible. And like, it, it's such a humanizing moment and it's it adds so much. And they improvised that scene, oh, supposedly, wow. in, in large part. So it really, it makes sense that it feels the most like human connection in the movie that you really get. That's a that's a great scene, cause especially because I, I think it's interesting. It shows um, clearly that's probably the most open that guy has been with someone in who knows how long right um well he even said that i think does he yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah he, yeah um and the first thing he does is shut it down and ruin it and close the door behind him right and virgil has to like let him because he does it in a racial way he does sure. it in a way to make sure that line is there and yeah you know we had a long way to go mm-hmm. yeah yeah we made it <laughs> <laughs> another note on gillespie uh i liked he had, he had a lot of character. Like, I was so caught off guard Um, whenever he discovers Virgil's badge. Yeah. And he's like, hey, w- like, Wood, I think, yeah. is come in here. Yeah. <laughs> he, like, sucks the badge. Yeah. And he's just like, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. that's such like, I was like, all right. Like, that's yeah. one of the moments where I was like, are we doing, like, kind of kind of silly sometimes? But no, yeah. just, you know, a movie about racism in the South. Well, they're all, they are dumb. <laughs> They yeah. have to be dumb, and so to some extent, they're gonna be a little funny. Yeah, to watch these because dumb the captain guys. has yeah. to be believably enough competent to be right. in charge of things, and he's just so much less stupid than everyone else. That's all it is. Yeah, he's the first one willing to go. Aren't we trying to solve the case? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know, like although he is also the first one to, he keeps coming to conclusions and deciding they're right for the sake of not doing any more work. Sure, I get that. And he's also certain- like smart enough to know. Like to see that how good Virgil is in yes. his job. Yes, I think I think it's so nice to see a, a character that goes back and forth so much in his growth, like Im- arresting Virgil and then immediately having to go in there and like, yeah, ask him to sign the thing that says that didn't happen, so we won't get in trouble. And he's yeah. like, "Come on, please!" Yeah. And then he does it, and he's like, "All right, well, back to treating you like crap." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and then you know of course the uh the line of like well you're just like us aren't you yeah when yeah. virgil wants to blame endicott mm-hmm. the plantation owner right away yeah 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 that was interesting i do also like that they give him the extra motivation of at a certain point he wants to the case to be closed so virgil will leave and virgil will not be killed true like he, he does is... recognize the danger, the real danger of Virgil being in town. Yeah. And it's not just talk because those uh, roving band of Forrest Gump boys are driving around. Uh, pipes get and him chains. into a warehouse. And, yeah. And then, uh, and I do like that, like, at, at the end of the movie, I always like it when, like, everything comes together. So you've got, like, the rowdy boys, but, like, plus two extra cars. So you're like, so there's no getting out of it. Yeah. And all the cops. And the the teenager, and her brother, and the diner guy, and the scarecrow, and the tin man. Yeah. Everyone's there. (laughs) I also, I like that they give Virgil a fight scene in which he uh, appears to be a competent fighter. And you have to assume he's competent in everything, because that's all he's shown. But he, you don't get to see him fight because he's just outnumbered. He just shows that he will make it difficult for them. He will fight to the last. He is competent, but there's no getting out of this until I think that's the that's cops shows such up. Such a mm-hmm. great way to show how good someone is in a fight without having to show a fight is yeah. show them keep four people at bay. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. 
just long enough to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but yeah, not Norman's so good. Like backing him further and further into the warehouse, like having him jump across the pit. Yeah. There's not even a window behind him. He's just up against the wall. Yeah. Woo. It was nice. I could watch Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> <laughs> I could watch Moonstruck. Yeah. Rod Steiger was asked to do Gillespie's gum chewing mm. by Norman Jewison. Mm. Brilliant choice. That alone, even from Go, if he, if, I mean, he was, a, he's a really good actor. He's a competent actor, but it's like, that would have just added more character to him than anybody else. Chewing gum yeah. alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He resisted the idea at first, but eventually grew to love it and went through 263 packs Jesus. of gum during shooting. I said, I was like, he his jaw Never must have been chewing. exhausted. Yeah. Like, and there was terrible. no flavor most Oof. of the time. You know it. Yeah. Well, Wife was real happy, though. I'm going to guess Juicy Fruit. <laughs> As a, that that's sense. a good one. That makes yeah. sense. So maybe not. Because it's not a minty one. Oh, that's it's still nice. What, that's not what I meant. Oh, that's <laughs> oh. You like a juicy fruit kiss? Because it's strengthening his jaw. His jaw workout. Nice. Oh, hey, oh, hey, for later. Well, we got there. <laughs> so was <will> his wife. Very nice. Rod Steiger won the Oscar, as did Catherine Hepburn, who was Sidney Poitier's co-star in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So they were both up that year. Sidney Poitier was not even nominated uh, rude but part of the reason there's set the other i think i can reason. guess well, he had another third huge movie that year to sir with love and it the vote being split on which movie to nominate him for is mm. largely believed to be why he didn't receive a nomination well, what did they or nominate it's just to cover up what they nominated him for nothing no he didn't get nominated so for they're anything. saying that they the three-way split yeah it, watered it, it down knocked so him out Okay. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. Likely story. Yes. We didn't. You didn't win because yeah. you were nominated for too the many things. The star of both best pictures. <laughs> we can't nominate him. Yeah. Right. It's racism but again, did, folks. He did eventually get like an honorary. I, d- I remember that. Right, a lifetime one, right? Yeah, yeah. and I yeah. remember being a child and not knowing what I was looking at and being bored. But, <laughs> but yes, I do remember that happening. As I was watching, I was like, ah, he would make a fine Vulcan. He's yeah. doing quite well at Vulcaning. This would be great. Mm, and mm-hmm. then I went, oh, yes. he's basically just... This is what Tuvok does on on Voyager. This is what Tim Russ. I see. Um, so maybe it's just a coincidence, but it really does feel like they're connecting a short dot. In enough of Star Trek that I've seen, a lot of what they do with Vulcans is say they're motionless and then they have emotions and mm-hmm. <laughs> they have outbursts. Right. Yeah, you get so it. So I definitely yeah. So that is very Virgil. He's he's calculated and just uh, straightforward, logical, uh, emotionally reined in, but his bursts. Of emotion and humanity are glorious. Yeah, the line "They call me Mr. Tibbs" is phenomenal. I do understand why it's so iconic. It's one of the AFI top lines of all time. Sure, that's the only part of the movie I that and the slap are the only two parts of this movie I'd seen before watching it. Sure, and you know the Lion King reference. Mm-hmm. That was what made me aware that that line existed, of regardless of not knowing what it was or the context or anything like that. I do think that not only the Pumbaa delivery. They call- But also the way it's spelled in the title for the sequel where Mr. is all caps, mm-hmm. they call me Mr. Tips. I still don't think that is a good representation of how, not how he, he delivers it. it. Right. He right. delivers it perfectly. Right. And the line it, like does stop you in your tracks. It's so good. And that's not how it's said. Right. It's very <laughs> even and steady. Yes. It's, there's not inflection. There's just assertiveness. Yeah. And his facial expression. And it's it's. He wasn't trying to scare away hyenas, though. Mm. You no. say it different when you're in the heat of 
They also <laughs> they also mix it with. Are you talking to me? Right, right. Which from I didn't. Taxi driver. I didn't realize was from Taxi Driver until I saw this movie, and it was not preceded with. Are you talking to me? Yeah. Oh well. So you didn't know that till like two days ago. Yes. Wow. I mean, it could have been in both movies said differently, but it wasn't. No, of course it wasn't. But she hasn't seen Taxi Driver. So I'm, I haven't seen Taxi Driver. She saw Joker. So yes. okay, but until two days ago, so you didn't know it was from in Taxi Driver till right now. Then no, I knew it was. I just didn't connect the dots. I see. I oh, just okay. assumed that it was all in the heat in the night. Well, maybe that's what they were going for. Maybe they decided let's parody two famous movie lines. Yeah, yeah I don't know, but great moment. Yeah. yeah. Great title for the second one. I don't think so. I but. I like it as a title, actually. I mm. think you'll find if the movie was better and he mm. had said that line in it. No, he can't say it again. Well, What's I'm, the reason he's saying it again? That's up to the screenwriter. I don't... Whoever titles it that. I know, but <laughs> there's no topping. <laughs> the, the reason the line's so powerful is because it cuts through a situation that's insane where they ask, what do they call you boy? And he, he's showing that he is held in esteem and treated with respect yeah. elsewhere I get to it. do it again. That's uh, I think one million dollars. <laughs> like that's, that's <laughs> taking a line that has meaning and going, no, da, 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 da. I think that you can, no, you can find it. You can find it again. You can find a reason to, no. uh, to, to make that moment sing for, a second time. A second time in a different note and harmonize it with the first one. Disagree. Lauren and I are right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a rare, I don't know if I've ever seen another title where it's specifically written with inflection. Like the mm-hmm. title of the movie is, if you have to write it out, Mr. <laughs> is all caps. Yeah. That's a good. And Tim's is explanation not. explanation point yeah. at the end. Yeah. Um, it's weird, but it's kind of cool. <laughs> it's the coolest thing this movie has going. Okay, we're we're really getting into the second one here, but I, I think maybe we should do Lauren's Corner first. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Round here on Lauren's Corner, Lauren's gonna cast a reboot of an old film with modern actors. Doesn't that sound like a hoot? But Lauren's gonna cast the reboot of yeah. In the Heat of the Night. Okay, so I'll start from like... Uh, less main cast and uh, and with main cast. So I actually forgot to cast Endicott until like five minutes ago. Mm. But I'm going to do like a fun little callback and cast Scott Wilson. Yeah, I think that's a good call. I was yeah. hoping Scott you would do Wilson. that. Who uh, played the, the young buck running oh, across the... Terrific. Yeah, that's yeah, terrific. yeah. That's excellent. Um, and a great reboot move. You yeah. get a member of the original cast, give it some validity. Yeah. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Classy. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Purdy uh dolores's brother you know the naked lady's brother mm-hmm. uh I got michael shannon oh good yes yeah. sure. yes um good pull if we did thank you uh for dolores purdy i have margaret qualley oh okay yeah andy um, mcdowell's, andy McDowell's daughter. daughter okay from the from yeah. the from perfume the ad, perfume ad, ad that I like. hollywood yeah um oh right that too. <laughs> for uh, Ralph, I went out to a couple ones with this, but I uh, the killer, the killer, the killer. Yeah, uh, I went with Lee Pace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. right? He's like huge. I needed <laughs> I, someone my, huge. <laughs> but that's okay, baby. No, my fir- this is my first one that I wrestle with. Too old. No, no I think all the too eight prominent, too much of a movie star. You know that character is important versus like. I like that this, I mean, if you're rebooting the movie and doing all the same plot points, what are you going to do? But I like, in terms of not knowing it's him from the beginning, I like that he seems like 
I don't know, not a star. Well, yeah. my original was uh, DJ Quail. Oh, sure. Love it. <laughs> love it. But I was like, can he pull off um, kind of unhinged? I and I wasn't I sure don't. if he could. <laughs> yeah. I, Lee I, Pace yeah. can do but unhinged. Now, maybe these days he could. We maybe don't know he could. Too lately. Um, he's in Breaking Bad. That, right. Lately. Lately. Okay. That's been a long right. time I ago. I can tell you about what year it is. Okay. Um, but <laughs> immediately I cast him. But then I was like, I don't know if he can do it. You're, uh, DJ. <laughs> <laughs> you're great yeah you're just so, step so, it up so pleasant um <laughs> so pleasant. yeah yeah okay <laughs> nice thing we can say um for sam wood i have bill Hader. oh the guy spying on yeah, the whole, uh, yeah. dolores who yeah. yeah but a little more serious but oh he can funny. do it. absolutely yeah, yeah. he can do good. both he can do it yeah. all for uh bill gillespie i went with russell crowe Ooh. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Originally, yeah, like, what did she have before? Jack I, Black. But I knew, ooh. I knew he could. He, he could. I don't want to say he couldn't do it. He, I don't, I don't I think he could, could though. It, but, but I saw Russell Crowe as like he that, could do that's it. Terrific. Like like now like older chubby Russell Crowe, perfect. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and for Virgil <laughs> Tibbs, I went with Sterling K. Brown. Of course. Oh yeah, that's yeah. solid. Snaps all around. This is a, thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, I also have a bonus just because I saw him and uh, Courtney, one of the guys who was being like, "Oh, that was that wasn't me. That was my brother." Oh, you're right. Um, uh, Jim O'Hare. Oh, just because yeah, he right. had such Let's such such Jerry energy, I was like, "He's twins. gotta be." If yeah. you're doing a reboot, turn it up even goofier yeah, yeah. than he's twins. Yeah, and Jim O'Hare could play great twins. Yeah, he could do anything. My good friend Jim yeah. O'Hare. Jim. <laughs> Paul gets his last-ditch efforts as Jim <laughs> Hare. That's right. All right. Well, so let's talk about this second one. Oof. Uh, so I, I had to ask my brain so Paul, fast. Uh, like, ten minutes into the movie, if this was released in theaters or a made-for-TV movie. Because mm. it looked like Oof. the latter. Yeah. It's it looked stronger. worse than that. Yeah. It really did. Completely this... blown out and just devoid of any saturation or uh contrast it's a dull really tv lighting setup. everyone looked bad he looked bad virgil tips like cindy Poitier looked bad it's a good he, percentage of slightly out of focus shots yeah a lot of them looking straight into the camera to no edit effect right Way too much to, but it. to like, be clear like they they clearly they thought they were doing something right. with this visual motif throughout the film where they would just cut to a just the head yeah of the character looking almost directly into the camera at like, you the audience which yeah. i don't hate but they just weren't doing anything it with was, it it's like a clumsy fumbling silence of the and they did it effort. so much it could never have me. right and there didn't seem yeah. to be any pattern i could recognize other than yeah. they decided it was time to cut into a dramatic close-up but like an awkward one i want you guys to guess take your best shots at what you think the first one and then the second one scored on rotten tomatoes Oh. Um, I'm guessing the first one scored like 89, 92. Okay. Guessing the second one scored 58. 53. Okay. Well, Lauren, as always is very, she's usually gets it exactly right. That sounds like her, but she got very close. 94% for the first one, 50% for number two. What number am I thinking even... of right now? Seven. Oh, it was 72. You <laughs> yeah. were half right. Uh, see? <laughs> Wow. wow. 70, seven is not half of 72. You guys got to play the lotto. <laughs> yeah. See what she comes well, up it with. Well, it only works if I have a billion dollars that I'm going to give to someone who guesses close to the numbers I have in my head. 
She can only do it with... Uh, no, because she, she, she just did it with the box. Just, just, just try to figure it out. No, That's no, all I'm asking. I, I try, you, no, you, I tried to figure to out do... the filtration system. I up the Damn, I was yeah. really I close. Yeah, I'm good at this. Uh, I would have given it less than 50%. This is, I think, one of the worst <laughs> sequels we've done. Yeah. Yeah. On the show. Definitely. If not the worst. It's, it committed well, the ultimate sin of being dull. There was really nothing to latch on to. It's definitely not worse than... Uh, the Easy Rider sequel or Titanic Two? Disagree. I really enjoy both of those more. Than really, I'm not, I, it's Titanic hard to say they're better least... movies because this had some budget versus Titanic Two. Mm. Titanic Two at least doing like that. It's fun to watch how bad it was. It was fun to yeah. This was very hard. This was not even fun to make fun well, of. It was just boring. And it's true, but. In addition to being boring, when it wasn't boring, the most interesting scenes were Virgil with his family, which were uncomfortable and horrible. Yeah. Yes. He beats his son. He His wife is not a character. I mean, it's just a sex object, basically. And he tells his son that's like he, he uses her as that in front of his son. Everything mm-hmm. about him at home is the only character you get of him in the movie. And... I liked everything about him in the first one. I liked nothing about him in this. Yeah, I'm not sure what point they were trying to make. If there was something in the book that got lost, if he is just unhappy at home, if that yeah was well, a thread that was meant to be picked up and changed. If that's what I was supposed to read, the ending of the family showing up as well. I understand that he could have easily been lying to Gillespie, but in the first one, he says he's not married specifically, mm-hmm. and he also says he lives in Philadelphia. <laughs> in this yeah. movie, he's in San Francisco. He's married with a kid. Like, two kids. With two kids who are at least... Oh, I keep forgetting about he's the other daughter. Right. But yeah. They're like Bart and Lisa. He's got like a 10 and 8 year old or whatever. Right. Yeah. And he hates them. So <laughs> so this is either 10... He either went home to Philadelphia, fell in love with the woman he hates, moved to San Francisco and made two kids immediately. Well, but this movie was Came at out least four years later. three years later. Yeah. But the kid is like 10. I know that's what I'm saying. So, so yeah. They don't say what year it is, I guess. I don't think. That's true. I guess that's it could be I mean, a time but jump. Just, but why anything? That's Why anything? Question. Yeah, right. You don't get anything for this movie. <clears throat> the the all the racial elements of tension are pretty gone. Yeah, and I don't Not I don't say that you need that for it to be an interesting story because Virgil Tibbs is such a cool character. Right. But they didn't do anything with that part either. Yeah. She's kind of got nothing but a really poorly made, underdressed film. I can't remember any of them. Because it was very hard to retain this movie at all. But he had some good lines. I remember mm-hmm. the first half of the movie where we didn't know where we were because there was always a white room uh, mm-hmm. and it would change what that location was. But he would end the scenes with like a good line. Yeah. And then that went away. Like, you know, like, or maybe I just stopped liking him so i stopped liking that uh, the movie mm. really felt like it, it had about 30 to 40 min- minutes of content that was stretched out so many sequences were there were two lengthy yeah chase sequences right yeah um that don't amount to a ton and both of which could have been cut down but <sighs> versus the chase sequence in the first one which is like entertaining mm. and funky and like thrilling though we don't know who that person mm-hmm. is in both chase scenes we know who the person is and there's no stakes. Right. Right. And you're just not sure what's happening for most of the movie. No, There's why? not really any information. Yeah. At the beginning of every scene, I was like, why are we here? I guess it doesn't matter. Oftentimes, to me, it did seem like Virgil learned things by virtue of deciding he needed to know them. Right. And then would go prove that he was right with his smarts. Yeah. But I, I couldn't follow. I couldn't follow what was going on. Well, 
it wasn't like he, he was proving he was right to anyone because no one else was ever around. There right. were no characters except for people he's talking to, and they're just a person he's talking to. That's all any of them amount, amount to. And they're either going, no, officer, I right. don't know anything. <laughs> or they're going like, why, of course, officer, I'd love to help you. Right. And he's the only one, he's the, he's the best cop in this movie by virtue of the fact he's the only one doing anything. He has two partners, it seems, in this movie, one of whom goes away. Like, you establish him as his partner, then he goes away. Then the next time you see him, he says, you're gathering all this information, you weren't going to tell me? And it's like, well, where have you been? And then that character never comes back, like, right. disappears. So he, he's, he stops working the case. There's no, like, actual struggle there. And then the other partner is a man who never says anything. And is just sitting there yeah. with him in the car. That had to have been a joke, right? That was such I, a weird... I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that was like... I don't know. I don't know enough about... The man in the tiny cops. hat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This cop stuff. I don't know what gets left over from books. I, I don't know what I'm supposed Number to 71. picking up on. But yeah. unfortunately, like I said, there's nothing in the movie to latch on to. Yeah. So you do end up fixating on stuff like this that you might let go of in a movie... Because there was stuff in, in the heat of the night that I was kind of like, oh, I'm not really following, but I don't care because, like, it's, right. it's terrific. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This was not terrific. No. Well, okay, so the people... Okay, I could not find a budget for the... Neither could they. Waka <laughs> <laughs> uh, It grossed two million, two million three hundred fifty thousand. so... Grossed two million dollars? Yeah, I mean, Jeez. the first one, 24 million. Right. It was written by Alan Trustman and James R. Webb. Alan Trustman wrote Bullet and the Thomas Crown Affair. Oh. And James R. Webb wrote How the West Was Won and Cape Fear. So not lightweights not by any means. Norman Jewison directed uh, the Thomas Crown Affair. Did he? I believe so. I believe that's correct, yes. The really? original? Yes. And the, uh, original, the original Rollerball. This was directed by Gordon Douglas, TV director. Ah, uh, it shows. He, he, he directed In Like Flint, Austin Powers' favorite uh -oh. movie. Mm. I can uh, see the similarities. You've seen that movie? I've seen clips, and it is mm. also very washed out and unsaturated. That, that 60s, and 70s. Yeah, no flat. contrast. Yeah. We did make Austin Powers references in this, like it's while true. watching it, just watching him That's move true. And, and music cues and stuff. So I, for, I forgot to do this. In the first one, I really only have actors who were up for Gillespie mm. uh, before Rod Steiger took it. George, George C. Scott. Nah, sure. Good. Great choice. He was unavailable due to the flim flam man. Hope it was worth it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll check it out. I like that title. That's a good title. And would love C. to have seen him and Poitier go head to head. That yeah. would have been uh, something. Lawrence Tierney was also considered these uh, the boss from Reservoir Dogs. Plays Lincoln's Whoa. father in Seinfeld. Scary. Same type. These are all the chickless body type that we're <laughs> He was uh, on Star Trek. He was in the first season of Next Gen. He was one of the hologram gangsters, and they end up going out in the hallway and vanishing. Mm. If you've seen the Seinfeld inside looks, they never asked him back on the show because he stole things from the set. It was apparently a... Oh, I, I heard oh, wow. it was that he scared everybody. Well, that too. Everyone was afraid of him. What's his name? Lawrence Tierney. He was on uh, Deep Space Nine. That was an arms dealer. Was he uh, the guy that was like really unpleasant and yes. you said no one wanted to work with him anymore? Yes. Yeah. Big sort of meaty guy. The kind same type Johnson kind as of. this yeah, as Rod yeah. Steiger and George C. Scott. A, bull, a bulldog. Yeah. He's a bulldog. <laughs> so the only uh, casting thing I have for the second one, Donald Sutherland oh, yes, was originally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Scary. 
Donald Sutherland was originally announced for the Martin Lando role. You know, this movie's so kind of nothing that Martin Lando's there for a bunch of it, and who cares? He's right. the second lead. He does it. Yeah. He's the killer. Yeah. Who right. cares? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. There's no reason to try to like anybody, including Virgil Tibbs. Like, I guess you like his wife because you and his kids because you want them to because they're be okay. They're a wife and kids. <laughs> they seem you fine. Want, yeah. yeah. You want to like him because he's Sidney Poitier and, and you liked him so much in the first one, but this movie challenges you at every turn by boring you with him and then having him you watch him like he catches his son smoking a cigarette in the shed you know like kids in the 70s do so then he makes him smoke a whole cigar and splits a beer with him yeah until he throws up yeah and you want it to be i'm telling you that was whiskey you want it to be like when hank hill does it you want it to be a lesson but it feels feels mean yeah a little and bullying and then later he slaps him three times yeah yeah he just keeps slapping him and 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 like you said instills in him to beat people right? yeah his family not not bad guys right beat his family yeah uh, and they don't seem life. to be commenting on anything with it or doing anything with no. it and i'm not sure what i'm supposed to take away from it i feel like they were going for like this is an admirable thing. This father is teaching his son with tough love. Right. But he, all I saw was like a child crying and telling their parent, you made me cry. Yeah. He said, hit me as much as you want. It doesn't hurt anymore. It, can, or it hurt, can't hurt any worse. It can't. Yeah. Something to that yeah. effect. Of like you've hurt yeah. me so much that nothing it, you can do yeah. can hurt me. Yeah. And then he does hit him again. Yeah. And I was just like bombed. I was like, well, I w- wish I could watch Titanic too. <laughs> well, and he says in the scene, it's weird. Like for you to bring up, it's like, we're supposed to, revere it i guess he even says like it's supposed to be good that i'm in your life i'm your father and it's like <laughs> imagine oh, yeah, you'd guess. be without me right. <laughs> like, oh yeah and then it just t- made me quite oh no maybe it's not or probably it's not you know he also tells his son like you can't be perfect can you i don't forgive you don't for forgive that you. <laughs> you're not perfect are you i don't, I don't forgive, forgive you. you i can't forgive you and this was his response yeah. to his wife telling him that the his child uh, oh. hit his sister right they Which, had an angry oh, sibling right. fight and Which, he went to correct that and this is how he chose to do it right and before that he says to the little girl god he you deserve to be hit you brought yeah. this he on said, yourself you, you brought this on yourself you it was none of your business that so, he spoke back i'm to glad his wife like yelled at him for that at, at least. least yeah, yeah. Um, so but it seems like that and they kind of end like that and they don't really go anywhere but then at the end of the movie literally right after oh my god the, i can't the, i the, resol- the resolution of the you know the guy who kills himself so that he doesn't have to get arrested and it'll oh, smirch the the I, cause he's actually, working for we should talk about this i okay. will say that finally at the end of the movie finally that was interesting right it yeah. was finally interesting once you knew he was the killer his friend that the Land issue out. became does he bust him now or does he let this vote whatever that, it is <laughs> right but it was supposed to be good it was something that he support For he virgil tibbs supported uh before this vote goes through that martin lando is the figurehead of because if he goes to jail now the undecided people will vote against him and, and they'll if- never be able to recover from the public stain of it and he was just asking him just don't arrest me for 24 hours mm-hmm. and virgil tibbs is meant to be our like like a Javert type. And yeah. he's like, well, but the law is the law and I got to take you in. So he does. And then, and then L- Martin Lando, Lando walks in front of a truck and kills himself. Right. So that the message can move on. And then God. what should be the next, the very interesting crux of the movie is Tibbs is now being interviewed. And it's like, is he 
going to sit, tell everyone that this man was guilty. And instead of having him decide at all, he stops talking to a reporter mid-sentence and goes and walks over to his family and they leave. Well, and he, no one says a thing to well, him. He, sa- well, he, he said he they, was in custody. He did confirm that he was right. in custody, which, which is I not think helpful. Kinda, but they asked, do you consider this case solved? And he says, the case isn't solved until a judge dot, dot, dot. But he and still is incriminating and then he, the guy. And then he wanders off. Well, and to that, some extent, but he doesn't finish it. And I think that he should but finish I think, it one way or I another. He should lie meant, or he should tell the truth. I think that what's meant, meant to be, because he says that line earlier. to a Right, guy. I know. Yeah. So I think what that that is meant to be is him in some way choosing his family over... I know, but... I think what? that in order yeah. to do that, it would have been like... But um, he would have like denied that he was there to arrest him and just been like, oh, I was just seeing a friend and then walk over. To right. I agree. He should have made the choice specifically. Right. Like, I agree that he maybe stopped speaking. I thought he stopped speaking because he's can reconsidering his what used to be his point of view that a case isn't closed until the judge says so. And we have to be by the book. Maybe now he's considering well, what his sacrifice would be for nothing if I blow this up. But they just decide to avoid that moment at all and he walks away from I guess it. what I mean is like that's what the moment's trying to be right but it's bad right it's terrible badly <clears throat> presented it couldn't be worse um so it's it's baffling yeah. but I believe that's what that moment is trying to be yeah well it's and I guess I had to accept it to some extent because the movie had already established that when you're in a pool hall full of drunk people with music playing it's silent outside of the music without there being a reason for it to be silent. It wasn't one of those scenes where you're in the bad guy bar and then the cop walks in and everybody just glares at him. Right. It's literally, they just left the sound out of the movie. And so that's, we, if we accept that, we can then accept that he can walk away in the middle of an interview about the case he just solved, leave with his family, and no one's going to say a thing to him as they walk away. Uh, well, I'll tell you, in this movie, if the next thing that's going to happen is the the end i'll believe anything they want uh-huh. just get me out of this <laughs> Oof. the titles yeah. in comparison were also so lame yeah it was all very it was all very subpar like an like an episode like when you like watching nick at night yeah, yeah. but like when the cop show would come on but you're not allowed to turn the channel because you agreed to do a podcast about it <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome uh <laughs> This is movie, my fun fact about the second movie, I only have the one, notable for being one of the few movies in which Ed Asner wears a full toupee for his useless part. Well, it's got to be notable <laughs> for something. I am glad to know that, that he never had that hair. Mm-hmm. Like, just in case you thought he ever had hair, nope. Bald from birth. Okay. Well, if anybody has anything more to say, we nothing. can. Yeah, no. let's just no. get the fuck just, away from this movie. I'm glad we decided not to watch the third one as yeah, well. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and I'm going to get into that right now just to talk about other sequels. The third installment came out the next year, 1971, called mm. The Organization. Still in San Francisco, Virgil Tibbs helps a group of idealistic vigilantes expose a drug ring controlled by powerful businessmen. Sounds like it could be... No, but they recast like sounds boring like this. <laughs> they what? They recast Poitier, right? No. Oh, it's still Poitier. It's still Poitier as Virgil. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> it has a 25% Ooh. on Rotten Tomatoes. Closer to your guess. Oof. Yikes. Just written by James R. Webb, so one of the writers of the first one. Directed by Don Medford, TV director, most famous for The Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And the fun fact I have about that movie is it became one of the first, if not the first, cop movie series that got to a part three. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, before Dirty Harry. Before? Before Dirty Harry, yeah. Beverly Hills Cop. 
Yeah. Before, <laughs> what's it called? That's it. Those are the big three. Um, three for three. Uh, Mel Gibson Lethal and Weapon. Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon. Thank That's you. embarrassing. That is embarrassing. Yeah, there's like six of Die those. Die Hard. You really ran out? I thought you no, were joking. No, I, I was. <laughs> ah, I was doing joke and bits. Busted. I got you guys. You silly. And then there is another sequel in a way. In nineteen From 1988 to 1995, there was a TV series in the heat of the night. It picks up after the first one left off. It's a sequel to the first mm. one directly in which Virgil Tibbs comes back to Sparta, Mississippi for the funeral of his mother. And then Gillespie and the captain talk him into staying there and being a cop there gillespie's played by carol o'connor howard rollins plays virgil tibbs and is replaced in the final season season seven by carl weathers oh. as a different character oh. hampton forbes nice. which i really like <laughs> in comparison to virgil tibbs they really hampton they yeah. want it to be like similar like a fancy hampton name that ends with, a, with, a, with a bs <laughs> yeah. yeah it has to be a fancy boy name and then yeah 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 I love it. That's cute. But I think it's funny you brought up Archie Bunker Bunker earlier because Carol O'Connor. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, well, he is Archie Bunker. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because so I remember looking Gillespie. at the, seeing him on the IMDb. Yeah. I got to admit, show. I thought it was still the original guy. Oh. So good recasting. I thought it was a different guy, <laughs> yeah. but I just assumed it was like in that genre yeah. of Tom Bosley kind of looking guys. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> We've really <laughs> nailed it on this type. <laughs> We have a lot of examples we're ready to pull out. I know more of that than I do cop franchises. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into our pitches, let's do Unsung Heroes. Hit it, Paul Jr. Unsung Heroes! Anybody uh, have any? Oh, no? no. Enough for either? I... I I actually thought I was going to steal one from you. I was going to rush to steal it from you. Oh, really? Yeah, but we'll, yeah. I, 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 I'm sorry. I don't have any. I don't have any for In the Heat of the Night. My one I was going to steal from Lauren was The Disappearing Dog. I don't know if you noticed this. It was a very cool shot where Gillespie shows up at the train station. Virgil's ready to leave for the first time. And it's the scene where Gillespie talks him into staying by saying, like, you have to prove your, you can't pass up this opportunity to prove that you're better than everybody. Yeah. When he pulls up, which, by the way, I mean, I'm sure 1967, the brakes on cars weren't great, but there's so many shots of Gillespie coming in and parking, and it's always just a juddering stop <laughs> before he starts the scene. He's but, just a horrible, horrible driver. Yeah, which I could see. He's probably <laughs> drinking and driving. He pulls up, Virgil's sitting on the bus station, and it's a wide shot, and there's a stray dog walking in the bus station right by Virgil's bench and just like sniffing around and stuff. And okay. I was like, oh, that's such a cool thing to have in the scene and such it like it sets the scene so well over the time and the place and then when they cut to the side view the dog's gone no i don't i don't remember this dog at all yeah me well, neither yeah like which is surprising because i always notice yeah, it seems like something yeah. you would have caught yeah 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 unsung hero right. uh but i have to bring up this guy there's like a scene where the cops are having a meeting and there's a man, I guess he's a cop, but there's a man at the end of the table who, like, I just have him written down as the most evil looking man <laughs> in the world because he's at the end of the table and his line is something about, like, I tell you, he'll be dead. I mean, he says the derogatory oh, yeah, term, yeah. he says, he'll be dead by this weekend. Oh, yeah. And he's just like, <laughs> he's sitting seething. there, like, <laughs> shaking and seething. <laughs> and like, <laughs> like, the face he's making, the look he has, what he says, what he's doing. 
I he was a person that I looked at. I was like, if we don't see this character again until the end of the movie, they go, he did it. Yeah. I'll go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did it. Yeah. And he's only in that one scene. Right, I do remember that. I yeah. do not remember him. Unsung villain, I guess. He's oh. an unsung <laughs> That's villain. That's good. Yeah. I like that. Slap it, Paul Jr. Unsung villain. Scout. Yeah. Okay. Are we ready for pitches? Yeah. yeah. I kind of want to... Really think you should be picking orders for this stuff. I know. I know you think that. I agree in this case because I want to see what happens if... I want us to like roll dice to decide. Because I get into my head about the order of things and how that affects things. It does affect things. Of course it affects things. So I think it should be left to <clears throat> chance. It shouldn't be like a, oh, if only I'd spoken up. Well, let's, okay. let's get a dice app yeah. on our phones and we dice each app. roll one. Are we, so we're going like in order from highest to lowest? Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to roll. Roll for you. I got two. Two. That's a shame. You, uh, you can... Roll I'll for trust Travis. You. I trust you to push the button. One. What? Whoa. <laughs> roll Travis. for Paul. Oh, God. Two. Whoa! So, okay. Roll so, for roll for me, tiebreaker. Okay. Three. Three. Roll for you. One. Okay, I go first. So... That's a... And then now we're both ones. So we have to do a tiebreaker. We have to do a tiebreaker. Oh, okay. So sure. roll for me again. Yeah. Okay. Three. Three. One. So me, Travis, you. Paul. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> My name's Paul. <laughs> All right. All right, Lauren. <laughs> All right. So I, I had some trouble with this one, admittedly. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you can't hit me if I hit me first. Yeah. <laughs> Do you mind taking a look at that? Okay. 25 years after the murder in Sparta, Mississippi, both Tibbs and Gillespie are facing mandatory retirement, and neither too thrilled about it. On one of the coldest Thanksgivings on record, Gillespie has plans with a friend, Bill, for the f- holidays in Philadelphia. Gillespie arrives in town and only to discover his buddy has died under mysterious circumstances. Murder is suspected. Mm. Uh, heartbroken and furious and out of his jurisdiction, Gillespie looks up Virgil Tibbs for help. They haven't really kept in touch over the years, but Gillespie still has never seen a better homicide detective. Where would he? He lives in Missouri. Mm, Mississippi. Mississippi. Whatever, same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Tibbs agrees to help with the case. The looming new year will ring in his retirement, and one last good murder mystery is just what he needs to go out with a bang. The duo reunites, catch up, go over case details, and Tibbs shows Gillespie around the sites of Philadelphia. The trail to find the murder leads them to an abandoned building. Tibbs and Sis Gillespie wait outside, but Gillespie follows when he sees a mysterious figure go into the building. A struggle takes place, Tibbs saves Gillespie from a bullet, and the confrontation turns into a car chase where the suspect is apprehended. Gillespie struggles with the revelation that his friend's murder was random and unmotivated, but takes comfort in his f- friendship with Tibbs and both feel a sense of closure going into their retirement. Hmm. Title? Any title? Oh, In the Cold of the Night. Hey! <laughs> all right, all right. I like that more than I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. It's my turn, Paul. It's your turn. Put down the your... dice chose. We got uh, dice somewhere, surely. All right, give me another day. Two days, I'm close. I can pull that fat cat down. I can bring him right off this hill. Uh, so mine, this one's called uh, At the End of the Line. Nice. Mm. All right. Virgil is traveling to Chicago to be married, trying to put the dangerous life of a policeman behind him. I'm sh- unsure of what his future holds beyond his love, Casey. His partner... Alan Alda cameo drops him off in a squad car in uniform and they say goodbye. The conductor or whoever, you know, the guy who goes bored, um, assumes uh, it's a criminal transport and complains to Alan Alda. He doesn't want to transfer, transfer this cop. 
or this uh, criminal, um, Alan Alda sets him straight, and one of our young cast members, John Travolta, wow. uh, sees him. This will be set like back like it's sure. like 1970 or whatever. Yeah. Um, so he sees this. He's kind of like our Jimmy Olsen. Murder, most foul, occurs on this train. Mm. A man mm. traveling alone is killed, his body stuffed in a luggage car. A restless Virgil discovers him while going through his bags for love letters and a heavy guidebook of Chicago, always doing research and prep Virgil. He is quickly blamed for the murder, no longer a badge-holding police officer, but our young man, John Travolta, speaks up for him, forcing the conductor, Robert Redford, to agree that that's what happened. <laughs> Stack. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I got all kinds of budget. <laughs> um, First one was a huge hit. So the Oscar con- winner. The conductor agrees that he is a cop who got dropped off, but that does mean he didn't commit murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, other, the other people on the train, they don't want to stay on the train with the murderer. Uh-huh. They, want, they want the thing to stop. But Virgil must investigate and solve the murder murder before they get to Chicago and the killer goes free, while mm-hmm. also convincing the conductor at every stop to keep going, while a hostile train, save for his Watson, John Travolta, taking notes in the guidebook, making uh, every step difficult, mm-hmm. armed with nothing but his wits, his only forensics lab, his mind. Taking a page from classic mystery films, this has got an all-star cast. Gene Hackman, Elliot Gould... <sighs> Roy Scheider, Cher, Talia Shire, Louise Fletcher, and Eartha Kitt. And you can just, you, however you want them, sure, whatever you sure, want them to be. the Murder on the Orient Express cast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I haven't seen it. Well, they're, <laughs> it's just a big cast. They're on a train. Famous. Uh, there's twists, yeah. a hidden partner, a deal gone bad, and in the end, Virgil figures out the conductor is in on the drug running deal all along. And there's even a big cameo at the end from Pam Greer as the arresting officer in Chicago, who suggests they could use a man like him in the force. Chicago guidebook filled with notes in one hand, love letters in the other. He says he'll think about it, but for now, he's got to get home. Casey is waiting for him. He does, however, toss Travolta the guidebook on his way out of the train station. Nice. Very cool. Who plays Casey? We never see see Casey. She's okay. the love. <laughs> or share or tell you. It's enough. It's enough. Know. It's a big enough cast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. enough surprises. Cool. I, like I really it. want that uh, poster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. What you got, Paul? Yeah, I want to put up a fight here, but I'm I'm pretty impressed. And I mean, I have a favorite part. I'll tell you what my favorite part was later. Nice. And I have least favorite part. I'll tell you that too. What? But but well, I let's hear it. your. Pitch, I loved it. And I'll I'm let you know very... about my favorite. No 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 no. Favorite <laughs> but you're gonna. Okay. All right. Why do I say these things? All right. Well, I, no, I just thought maybe, um, maybe you wouldn't mind taking a look at this one. We open with Virgil Tibbs and his partner, Hampton Forbes, Carl Weathers, <laughs> <laughs> just stealing that, you know, uh, on the job in Philadelphia. Finally. They question some suspects. Virgil cracks the case. The perp gives chase. They make the bust. It's awesome. Back at the station, we get a sense of Tibbs' home office. His captain, Burt Young, mm. stealing for more Philadelphia why not, why <laughs> not? Know, yeah. loves, uh, etc. We're made to understand that Virgil has spent the last several nights sleeping in his office and using the locker room to wash up. Hampton suggests that it's time for him to go home because his clothes are starting to stink. When he arrives home, we see why he's been avoiding the place. His ne'er-do-well sister, Maureen, has been staying there with him for too long now until she gets back on her feet. Mm. Classic Maureen. There is some affection between them, but clearly a lot of mistrust from Virgil's side, a fact that is first illustrated when he questions her after finding some of his mail already opened. He comes across a letter from his unlikely friend-turned-pen-pal, Gillespie, that says the Sparta, Mississippi chief will be coming to Philadelphia to see him. Asking after it, Maureen lets it be known that she knows who Gillespie is, 
She talked to him on the phone when he called and Virgil was out. When the two friends meet, Gillespie tells Virgil that he has come to court Maureen. They've spoken on the phone a few times, for hours at a time, and Gillespie hasn't been able to get her out of his mind. It all started when Maureen responded to a letter for Virgil, one that Maureen never mentioned and Virgil never received. Mr. Tibbs is flummoxed by the situation for several reasons, keeps an eye on it, but doesn't stand in the way as the two consenting adults have a whirlwind romantic weekend that ends with them driving to Atlantic City and getting married. Gillespie calls Virgil to tell him the good news and thanks him, stating that all the best things that have happened in his life have happened because of him. The next morning, Gillespie is dead. Oh. Murdered in his sleep. Now it's up to Virgil Tibbs, with the help of, slash in spite of, the Atlantic City Police Force, to gather the evidence, round out the suspects, and solve the crime, all while facing that some of his worst-held fears regarding his sister might be proven right as a result. I'm not going nice. to tell you... <laughs> I'm not going to solve the whole murder or the whole mystery for you because I don't want to overplay my hand here. I'm just giving you the setup. Yeah. This is what the movie is. Yeah. And you can assume the clues are going to be awesome. Sure. The, the sure, yeah. ending is going to be satisfying. <laughs> the filmmaking tight. Yes. It's going to look sharp. The music's going to rule. I'll tell you a little bit more about what I would picture as the ending later after this pitch. But I'm going to end with this. The Atlantic City cops are quick to accuse Virgil of being involved, but quickly shut down by the modicum of evidence that he's able to present for his innocence. Naturally. Later on, after Virgil has more than proven his worth to them, the chief apologizes for ever pointing the finger at him. Virgil responds, Don't lose any sleep. The fact of the matter is, I'm used to it. This I call, In the Harsh Light of Day. Nice. The harsh Light of Day. That, yeah. Do you have a cast cool. for Maureen? Oh. <laughs> oh, I remember telling myself I needed to do that. Uh, you normally do. Book around. Yeah, I know. Okay. Tamara Dobson, he said just then, that same day. Well, speaking of uh, failures, what uh, didn't you... <laughs> What what are, what are you so quick to have already bullet pointed as like oh, your no, least I, favorite my, part of my pitch? And and this is just a this isn't even something I dislike. My least favorite part was the cast stacking. It just oh, became sure sure. Blah blah blah. I yeah. really I did I I agree. I really wanted to make up for how little of an actual mystery I could present. Yeah. So I needed candy instead yeah. of the vegetables. Yeah, but did you? That's that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but did you? And what did you like? It my was favorite, favorite part, part was the don't let the train stop. That's nice, <laughs> very, right? Very yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because that's what I really liked about In the Heat of the Night is he wasn't just figuring out the crime. Every step of the way was a push and pull of, is he even going to be worked with? Is he even going to stay? Is he, what side of the handcuffs is he on? Like every step of it was push and pull. I really like that. And just an an added ticking clock. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my thing left unsaid, regardless of the the solving of the mystery, Mm -hmm. I would want for Maureen... To ultimately be proven innocent of the crime, of being involved in the crime. She had things she was hiding, of course. Sure. But she was innocent of the crime, and so they go home together at the end with just a new... Fence is mended. Well, not completely. To some extent, because they've gone through this together, they both lost someone they potentially loved. Sure. And there is a corner turn, but there's still a... It's still that rich soup dynamic. Yeah. It's a bisque. All right. (laughs) Let's vote. Let's vote. All right. Um, Lauren. Long pause. Weirdly long pause. Trying to remember. Travis. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's not how you get your pitch voted for. 
But no, I do vote for you, Travis. Oh, <laughs> killing me. Oh. Sorry, cool. No, you're not. <laughs> I just really love like the, I, I really like bottle, kind of like a bottle thing, like being on a train. Yeah. I yeah. love limited space uh, yeah. stories. They're always very interested in me. Yeah. Me. I certainly would have enjoyed that more than uh, yeah. Mr. Tibbs. Um, calling Mr. Thank Tibbs. you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm voting for Paul's because I really want to see uh, Hobbs. What? Carl Forbes. Weathers. Oh, Hampton Forbes. Hampton, Hampton Forbes. Forbes. watch the show for that. No, I want to see yeah. him and in, in Virgil yeah. Tibbs like, being yeah. partners and stuff. I think that's... Uh, the, the, the love story... Mm. Is the hardest sell for me. I'm gonna have to see how that plays out to sell me on it. But the fact that like he then dies and we're the rest of the movie is like the fallout from that right. does make it go down a lot easier. There's mm. lots of evidence built up in that first act. Sure. Against her ultimately. Right. That's the big sell for me, because I love stories like that in which cause you like Gillespie enough and you know he's lonely that you do want the love story to work. And even after he's dead, you uh, to some extent, I would be rooting for she really loved him to some extent. You always want to root for love. No, not always. But in this case, well, you would or I would. Anyway, I vote for Travis's. You for love? No. Sometimes love's toxic. That's true. Yeah. All right. And probably true. would have been yeah, here, yeah. but he's his life's so messed up already would have been nice. Yeah, it's a real uh, Tony Soprano's sister and... Mm-hmm. Janice and Richie Janice, Janice and everyone, yeah. Really. Janice and Ralphie, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. And all of them. That's true. You don't yeah. root for love in those no. situations. <laughs> no, that's what I'm talking. You root about. That's where it's toxic. There, yeah, but I, yeah, I think because Maureen is still a mystery, and Virgil or and Gillespie is a friend to some extent to the viewer. Sure, I think the uh, the want is there. The want is there. Yeah, but I think. The biggest takeaway here is that I'm getting your a poster, poster right. for my friend. I'll take that. As you want. I'm sending it in personally. Did and you... I can go fuck myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yours wasn't bad. Uh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did we talk about. On the show, the posters? Have uh-huh. we mentioned that in an episode yet? Yeah. We did. Yeah. The frames and stuff. Right. Okay. Oh, the the the, the ones I yeah. made. No. For, mm-hmm. no. 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 So for yeah, okay. So for Christmas, Paul got us these really nice like trading card frames. Mm. And each of the little in these little tiny trading card frames, he has made the poster for each one of our winning pitches. He photoshopped the movie. And so now we have hanging on our wall this like scoreboard across the seasons <laughs> of when our pitches won mm. so now it's it's serious now it's for all the marbles now every time we do this we could win or lose mm. a trading card poster and i will not lose yeah I refuse well, stakes are higher now there's even little he did like little stats yeah. on the back and quotes incredible and stuff. like these yeah. are not to be trifled with these are delightful it's true. Yeah. Paul's great at uh, giving gifts and friendship. <laughs> yeah. And you'll find when you look at the stats how often Lauren votes for Travis uh, <laughs> in situations where he's won. And so we need to get some more writer. people back in here to, you know, mix up, you know, mix it up. Um, mm. You're an award-winning writer? Yeah. Oh, these cards? No. Oh. No, I have an audio verse award. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, that's cute. I'm a Saturn Why don't we talk about that? I wish I had a Saturn Wait, is that not what it is? It's an audio version. Why don't we introduce you that way every time? Where is it? It's 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 wrapped up in a somewhere. I don't know. No, it's not. It's it's in the it's in a closet oh, okay. somewhere. Because um, mm. I'm not an asshole. What? Well, <laughs> you brought it up just now. Yeah, that's the yeah. joke. Because like, yeah. I'm like, I'm not an asshole, but I brought up the award, right, to right. showcase why I deserve to yeah. win at the podcast game. Yeah, that yeah. is an asshole thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where explaining the joke to you at this length lands on the asshole. Well, you're, but you're still going. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you just gotta... We'll find out. You know, you bring the bit back around. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the follow-up showdown. We'll be back next time covering The French Connection 2. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can write a review. And follow us on socials at The Follow-Up Showdown on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter at FU Showdown Pod. 